Hey everyone, welcome back to the Gaining Health Podcast. I'm your host, Carly Burge, and today I am just super excited and honored to have our guest with us here today. We have Dr. Ruxana Iqbal, and she is a board-certified physician who specializes in treating patients with both medical and psychiatric illness. She received her medical degree from Northeast Ohio Medical University in Rootstown, Ohio, and went on to do a dual residency in family medicine and psychiatry at the University Hospital Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio. She then completed her fellowship in consult liaison psychiatry at Northwestern University in Chicago, Illinois. And she's practiced as an adult psychiatrist at Hinsdale Behavioral Health in Hinsdale, Illinois for the past 13 years. And she's also an adjunct professor at Midwestern University in Downers Grove and teaches family medicine residents from Loyola McNeil Hospital in Maywood, Illinois. She lives in the Chicago suburbs with her husband, Dr. Omar Shamsi, who's also an obesity specialist, uh, and their three children, amongst whom she counts as her best teachers. So thank you so much for being with us. Welcome, Ruxana. Oh, thank you, Carly. It's really a pleasure to be on your podcast today. Yeah, I'm so excited to have you here. You know, I've gotten to know you kind of through your husband and and I, you know, met him through the Illinois Obesity Society. And I've gotten to know your three amazing children in the last few years. And I've been so excited to see some of your presentations. You've done several presentations now over the last few years for the Obesity Medicine Association and for the Illinois Obesity Society on topics like mental health and obesity, and also psychiatric medications, and how they can contribute to obesity and what we can do there. And also the very important topic of eating disorders. So again, so many really, really important topics when we're talking about the management of obesity. So when did you first start to really focus on that intersectionality between mental health and obesity? When did that kind of start for you? Yeah, I think um, that intersectionality is essentially um, something that is a big part of my overall approach to patients in general. Um, I was always really interested uh, in that combination between primary care or family medicine and psychiatry. And um, as a as a medical student, um, I was able to do a rotation in Cincinnati uh, where they had a combined residency and that really just sparked an interest in wanting to be able to take care of patients in a very sort of holistic way Mm -hmm. and being able to identify what medical things were going on with patients, what psychiatric illnesses were going on, how did they play off of each other, how did they affect each other. And that's what really drew me to a combined residency and then, uh, you know, a fellowship afterwards. And, um, Obesity is one of those illnesses that uh, really you need to be able to to address both, you know, what's going on physically and what's going on from uh, a mental health standpoint, Um, you know, not unsimilar to uh, smoking cessation or other behavior changes that we talk so much about, especially in the primary care world. You know, we spend a lot of time on identifying behaviors that may be putting patients at risk uh, for illness down the road and taking a more preventive approach to helping them to be able to identify why they're engaging that behavior, what purpose is it serving, um, what can we do instead um, Mm -hmm. to be able to then avoid complications down the road. So, um, obesity 
really falls right in that category of needing to address both. Yeah, yeah. And I I love your approach of being able to offer that holistic, comprehensive care. You know, that's something that I feel so strongly about, too. And and kind of, you know, for me, it was in my undergraduate where I kind of started, I started with a psychology degree, and then also wanted to do a physiology degree, because I think you're so right, you know, there's that they are so interrelated. Um, of course, obviously, a bachelor's degree is nothing like going on and doing residencies in this. So I think it's just so wonderful that you've really taken this holistic approach. Um, so can you talk to us a little bit about the prevalence of mental health disorders like depression in patients with obesity and kind of why it is that that bi-directional relationship exists and kind of what that relationship is like? Mm-hmm. Right. So we know that for the general population, the lifetime risk of depression is about 10%. Um, and then when you look specifically at our population of patients with obesity, um, you know, that that risk goes up quite considerably. Um, and um, for an obese person, uh, they have almost, uh, you know, 55% increased risk of developing depression over time. Um, and vice versa too, it's about the same percent, somewhere in that like mid fifties, um, uh, percent of an increased risk and it, and it goes both ways. So patients that have obesity have an increased risk of becoming depressed. And then patients that have depression have an increased risk of, um, experiencing obesity. Okay. And talk to us a little bit about kind of the science behind that and the neurotransmitters. Cause I think you're so good at explaining that. And it's not just that you know, somebody may be feeling, you know, down or depressed about their weight or, or, you know, vice versa. There's real like neurological processes and hormonal processes going on that, that seem to drive this, right. Or inflammation plays a role, right. Can you talk Mm -hmm. to us a little bit about the science behind that? Yeah, absolutely. Right. And so, you know, oftentimes, like you said, the first thing that comes to mind are kind of the more, um, you know, emotional aspects um, or what could be going on psychologically with a patient. But, you know, when we dig a little bit deeper, you actually find that there is a biology that's kind of underpinning that whole process. And so, you know, part of it has to do with your HPA axis. And um, so that's your hypothalamus, your pituitary, your adrenal glands, and that whole cascade of hormones that gets kicked off um, when a person has obesity can then affect parts of your brain that cause depression. Um, So it can be via that route of um, those hormonal factors uh, playing a role and then uh, chronic inflammation as well. Um, So we know that the, the adipocytes, the fat cells that are there aren't just sitting there. They're not static uh, lifeless cells. They are very active in fact, and um, they are sending off inflammatory markers. So things, um, like interleukins and TNF, which are um, inflammatory markers, and um, they can travel to the brain and again um, affect parts of the brain that that cause depression. And then, you know, when a person is feeling depressed, then you know their their motivation goes down, their energy goes down, they're not sleeping well, they're not getting good rest, and so then it's so much harder um, to recruit all of that motivation to do the healthy things that we know are helpful in treating obesity. And so you can see where then that cycle just repeats. Right, right. So what I'm hearing you say is, is there's both kind of the biological underpinnings, and then there's also the emotional underpinnings and, 
and all of that kind of plays together to, you know, exacerbate, you know, one and the other. And then even like you mentioned, you know, a lack of sleep and things like that, we know that that's going to affect appetite hormones and, and, and all of that. So there's just such a complex interplay, um, like you mm-hmm. said, between all of these factors, and we can't really treat one without treating the other. Right. So that's just why I love what you do. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, we get sort of siloed off into our little areas of medicine and, you know, you're sort of like attacking it from one perspective, but then, you know, you may be able to get some headway, but then, um, you know, there might be kind of a a point where you're sort of hitting a wall. um, And that's where you then have to take that step back, I think, and think about like, what are all the other factors at play that maybe um, we're not addressing quite yet? Right. Absolutely. So in one of your presentations, you quoted Roxane Gay, who is the author of the book Hunger, a memoir of my body. And she also she does have severe obesity. And she writes that after being gang raped as a youth, she writes, I was swallowing my secrets and making my body expand and explode. I found ways to hide in plain sight to keep fighting the hunger that could never be satisfied. The hunger to stop hurting. I made myself bigger. I made myself safer. And so in that presentation, I mean, I I just thought that was so powerful for you to draw that in that perspective. And she has such a great way of being able to speak about her experience. Uh, And in my notes, I have that you had said to us in that presentation that about 25% of people with class one obesity, 29% of people with class two obesity, and 37% of people with class three obesity have suffered trauma as a child. So, you know, as clinicians, how can we kind of uncover some of these traumas? How can we sensitively talk about these topics about trauma and weight with our patients without kind of re-traumatizing the patient? Or, you know, how do you feel like trauma-informed care really plays a role in this? Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, I, I was pretty astounded by that um, statistic. And I think it it made me kind of take that step back and think about, um, you know, how am I asking my patients about their experience of trauma? And, um, you know, you, you could ask it very directly and just ask, you know, have you experienced trauma in your life before? Um, but you could, I think, try to take more of um, an approach of, you know, asking permission first and, mm-hmm. and asking patients, um, you know, if there's, if there's, if, if there's anything that has happened in their past that could be um, connected to what's going on currently. Um, and so, you know, sometimes I think um, it depends on the patient too. You know, if some patients are, are well connected within themselves to be able to understand that they, have ex- what they experienced was trauma. You know, everyone is, I think, kind of on their own journey and understanding their own life story and and understanding where, um, you know, where that trauma has taken place. And, um, you know, some some patients are very early on in their journey and they may not really be, um, they may not have that insight just yet to understand that what they experienced, you know, wasn't their fault and um, that there was a power differential at play and um, that they really do not have to blame themselves anymore. And um, some people are at the sort of beginning stages of understanding all that. Other people are kind of a little bit more along the way and, and understand what happened and, and, um, and are now sort of trying to figure out like, what can I do to help process that and move past that? Um, and so, 
asking patients about about their history of trauma, I think, is is helpful, but in a way where um, you know the patient doesn't have to go into excruciating detail about what happened necessarily. Mm-hmm. You know that probably best saved for um, their work with a therapist. Um, and so I think un- understanding that trauma has occurred and and kind of taking the patient's um, guidance there in terms of like how much they want to talk about it or um, disclose. And I think that's where, um, you know, you had mentioned trauma-informed care. And I, I think that's, that's where um, understanding how trauma can affect a person's life and affect their behavior and, um, and, and the end result of what we're seeing, we may not realize that trauma is a big part of it. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, usually when we think about trauma-informed care, you know, there's, there's several things that you want to make sure are in place as you're seeing patients and, and recognizing that, you know, especially as an obesity specialist, there's, probably a high percentage of patients who have experienced pretty significant trauma in their life. And so um, to kind of recognize that and to make sure that you're establishing that sense of, of safety um, where that, that patient feels safe coming to see you um, and they, they feel um, comfortable talking with you and that you, and that they know that you're not judging them at all. Um, And really making sure that the patient understands that, they are the ones in the driver's seat. So again, they're, they have that choice of disclosing what they want to disclose or not. Um, and, and making sure that they, they recognize that, um, you know, you're there to help them be able to understand and guide them. But, you know, ultimately they are the ones who are making the decisions about their care. Um, again, because of that power differential that was probably at play in their trauma that sometimes can be recreated again in the room when you're seeing a patient, because, Mm -hmm. you know, as the healthcare provider, you're sort of in this position of power and, and, and um, patients can sometimes be sort of influenced by that, where they may feel like, well, the doctor's telling me to do this or that I have to do it. Um, Or they fear, you know, sort of judgment or, you know, they're going to be mad at me if I didn't lose weight. I'm, I can't go back. I mean, there can be so many aspects of that where, mm-hmm. you know, just that sort of power differential is is at play and and helping um, the patient to, to recognize that um, they're the one who is really making the choices there. And they're they're, um, you know, in the driver's seat and and um, can choose what aspect of care they they want to focus on you know so it's not necessarily um the healthcare provider that's that's really sort of driving decision making it's a more collaborative approach it's more shared decision making which we talk about a lot but i think if we sort of recognize how that connects back to the trauma that they've experienced it's even more important to make sure that they really feel empowered and that they feel that you're arming them with education and knowledge and helping them to build their skills. So they feel like they are taking control um, of, of their situation. Because again, with trauma, so much of that experience may have been out of their control. And so, you know, you don't want to inadvertently replicate that in your therapeutic uh, relationship with that patient. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. Um, 
And I know we talk a lot about shared decision-making and I often use those words when I talk to patients, especially at their initial visit, you know, I let them know you're in the driver's seat. I'm just here to kind of help navigate and to support you in whatever way I can. But I never thought about it in terms of that power differential and how, you know, especially for patients who have experienced trauma. And like you said, not all of them may be ready to talk about that at the first visit or the second visit or at all. Um, sometimes yeah. I think it comes up when people are hitting plateaus and they mm-hmm. kind of tell you like, well, I always kind of get stuck at this weight. And sometimes that's just their biology fighting back. That's just a set point that their brain is really, you know, not letting them get below and we need additional tools to help them get past that. But sometimes it may also be because there was a trauma that occurred in their life when they were at that weight and they felt safer mm-hmm. at uh, at a higher weight. And I just had a patient the other day who, you know, has, has been doing well on the program. She's lost significant weight. Um, but, and she said, you know, I'm getting a lot more attention now and it's not mm-hmm. attention. She's, she doesn't want the attention. It's unwanted attention. And so sometimes when, you know, patients bring up things like that, it makes me wonder, you know, is there something deeper going on, something else that happened? Um, and so if somebody does have that history of trauma, do you usually recommend just asking them, is this something that you've kind of worked through with, you know, a mental health professional, or is that something that you're interested in? Or, you know, mm-hmm. how do you recommend, you know, approaching yeah. mental health counseling or things like that? Yeah, I think you can absolutely ask and um, see if they've ever talked about this before. Have they told anybody about this before? Mm -hmm. You know, and and for a lot of people, they may say, well, you're the first person I've said this out loud to. Yeah, that's how. Um, And you can um, congratulate them on feeling comfortable enough to be able to, to, to disclose that. And if they're feeling like they've been able to establish a trusting relationship with you, um, you know, chances are they can find that in a therapist too. I think a lot of times patients are are scared and it's it's hard to find trusting relationships um, in general, you know, whether it's with a healthcare provider or with, um, a, you know, a, a person in their life, you know, those early experiences oftentimes will teach a person to kind of not be trust, not be trusting of others. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's where then, you can help them to kind of make that link with, um, you know, if they've felt comfortable talking with you and if there's a therapist that you know and trust, um, chances are that they may have a good experience being able to talk about that further with a therapist. Yeah. Yeah. I really like that. Yeah. And I think one of the challenges right now is, you know, the lack of therapists (laughs) and and the accessibility. So hopefully we'll have, you know, more people going into the mental health field and more accessibility and insurance coverage and things like that. Because, you know, I think this, this emotional side and the trauma side is just such an important play, such an important role for a lot of people, not everybody, obviously. Um, but mm-hmm. for a lot of people struggling with obesity, that's a, a component that's mm-hmm. often missing is the psychological and the mental health side. So I'm so glad that you right. offer that for patients and yep. they can turn to you. Um, so, but to kind of go to a different topic, I think you really can't discuss, you know, obesity and mental health without discussing some of the weight promoting medications that are often used yeah. um, for treating mental health conditions, the, the antipsychotic medications, some of the antidepressants. 
So can you talk to us a little bit about, you know, we have a lot of our listeners are maybe primary care clinicians or other clinicians who are also treating, you know, mental health disorders. We have a lot of psychiatrists as well. So what can clinicians do when they are working with a patient with, you know, mental illness and they're looking at medication options? Are there certain medications that you might recommend or certain medications that you would want clinicians to try to avoid if possible um, because of their obesogenic properties? Sure. Yeah. So when we're thinking about the treatment of depression, um, it's always easiest uh, to to lose the weight that you've never gained. So in a way, um, if you can really choose wisely from the beginning, if you can, I mean, I recognize it's, it's difficult sometimes when people have already tried a few different medications. And, you know, sometimes we do get to that point where um, we may have to use a medication that has the potential to cause weight gain, but um, then we're monitoring very, very closely. But um, ideally, if when you're choosing that first medication for a person, if they're, if they're coming in um, and you've recognized uh, that they've got depression and they're interested in meds, then um, trying to choose something that's more weight neutral obviously would be best. Um, and uh, so if we're thinking about the antidepressants, oftentimes um, we're starting with the SSRIs and trying one of those first. And so uh, medications like sertraline or fluoxetine tend to be more weight neutral. Um, Lexapro can also be weight neutral. It just depends. I think initially, sometimes it can be. But what I've noticed in patients over the years now is they've you know been on medications for several years that sometimes over time, you can start to see weight go up a little bit. And so then sometimes, you know, we're maybe then switching um, to a different SSRI. Um, and in general, you know, usually we're trying one or two SSRIs first, if the patient, you know, either wasn't able to tolerate it or wasn't effective. And then maybe then switching to an SNRI, um, if, if they haven't been able to tolerate an SSRI or it hasn't worked for whatever reason. Um, and you could try an SNRI. And the good thing with those is that, you know, usually those are relatively weight neutral. Um, and all along the way, if at any point when you're using those medications, if you've kind of uh, plateaued out where, you know, you've pushed the dose as high as you can, um, they've gotten partially better, but not all the way, then that's when we're talking about augmentation strategies and what can we add to that antidepressant to help get us the rest of the way there in, in getting the patient feeling better. And so that's usually where you know, things like Wellbutrin or Bupropion can be a great option because um, it tends more towards weight loss. Mm -hmm. um, and um, But if, say, maybe they've tried that or if maybe they have a lot of anxiety as part of their clinical picture and you're concerned that maybe the Bupropion might make them feel a little bit more agitated, um, you, know, you could always try an atypical antipsychotic and um, right now there are four that are uh, FDA indicated for the treatment of uh, depression. And so, you know, some of those uh, can cause more weight gain than others, but they all as a class have that risk of causing weight gain and um, increased blood sugars and cholesterol. So usually my rule of thumb for patients, you know, if we are going that route of using an SSRI plus an atypical antipsychotic, then what I tell my patients is, 
make sure that you're, you're checking your weight, um, you know, at least once or twice a week. And if you're gaining more than four pounds in a month, then it's pretty likely that that weight will continue to go up. And so usually I, I tell my patients, you know, if you're, if you're increasing by four or five pounds that month, it's probably best to stop it and then reevaluate and see, you know, what can we use instead? Um, and again, it might be sort of a situation where they've tried a lot of medications and perhaps this medication is working in a, in a way where they're feeling much better um, in a way that they've not ever felt before. And so then you might say, okay, well, if you're feeling better and you're feeling more motivated and, and um, but you're also noticing a little bit of weight gain, then we have to work really hard to, to try to add additional strategies to help mitigate weight gain. So you know, sometimes then if they are on an atypical antipsychotic, maybe that's where we're adding metformin mm-hmm. um, or we're adding other medications to help now really kind of focus and, and treat obesity. Um, and so it's, it's always that risk benefit ratio that we're um, talking with patients about. Yeah, absolutely. And do you, do you find that um, a lot of other psychiatrists also do this kind of counseling with their patients in regards to, you know, having them monitor their weight and, you know, adding metformin or anti-obesity medications if, if the weight gain is fairly evident? Do you feel like that's fairly standard? Uh, or is that something that you are particularly aware of because of kind of your interest in obesity care as well? What do you think? Yeah. Well, I think um, psychiatrists are checking labs and are aware of that connection between, especially the atypical antipsychotics and weight gain and um, increases in blood sugars and, and cholesterol. And so I think that's pretty standard that um, the, those guidelines have been there for quite some time. Um, and I've, I've been starting to see more and more people, I think, um, routinely offer metformin, even as they're first starting that atypical antipsychotic to really take a very like preventative approach, especially if there are risk factors in that particular patient, you know, if they're, they've got that family history of diabetes or, um, you know, they, um, are coming from a population where they've got a a high risk of diabetes, then they, they may really benefit, um, significantly from metformin. So I'm starting to see that a little bit more, um, with the obesity medications, I think, um, more and more psychiatrists, I think, are are starting to get interested in in learning more about using those medications. So they've definitely seen a um, a small uptick there. Yeah, I've noticed that as well. In fact, you know, because I'm involved with a lot of the obesity groups and I help people start some of their practices, I've actually had a number, probably a handful of people who work in psychiatry or in mental health who are now also starting obesity practices either as an adjunct to their psychiatric program or kind of starting an obesity program, but with that foundation and with the focus on the mental health and the psychiatric health. So I think that combination mm-hmm. of those two fields just makes so much sense to me. So um, it's yeah, great to it see. really does. It's great to see that that's really increasing. Um, so we're going to switch quickly to eating disorders. I know this is a lot of things to cover in one podcast. Um, but you know, what, what can you tell us about the prevalence of eating disorders uh, in patients with obesity? What are some of the most common eating disorders and and how can clinicians screen for eating disorders in patients Mm -hmm. with obesity? Right. Yeah. So, you know, the most common, um, eating disorder that we see is binge eating disorder and, you know, about 10 to 15% of, uh, people who 
have obesity um, meet criteria for binge eating disorder. And um, it can be something that doesn't always get recognized because there's so much shame and embarrassment around binge eating specifically. Mm-hmm. And so um, unless you're really asking those questions, um, the patient may not disclose that to you um, again until they sort of feel like maybe they can trust you and they feel comfortable sharing that. So um, it's it's helpful to be able, I think, to recognize if a patient has binge eating from the beginning. So that way you can then kind of tailor your strategies to include that in your treatment plan. And so a couple different ways of being able to screen for binge eating. And there's lots of different um, questionnaires. So if you Google <laughs> screening questionnaires for binge eating, you'll come up with you know a whole list of them. But a couple of them that I think are um, are helpful. So w- one that is sort of short and sweet is the um, BED7, mm-hmm. and you know that just has a few questions about um, binge eating and you know are are people essentially eating. Um, where they feel that sense of lack of control over their eating um, and where they're you know, eating when they're not hungry. Um, and it's accompanied with a sense of feeling out of control. Um, and it's something that is often hidden um, from families um, or their significant others, their friends. Um, and they oftentimes will feel very very guilty or very embarrassed by that behavior. So there's a lot of shame and a lot of secrecy mm-hmm. surrounding it. Um, and so that questionnaire is is nice because it's it's short and it's easy for the patient to, to fill out. And then at least gives you kind of a, a jumping off point, you know, if there are, um, if it is a positive screen. Um, and so that's a good place to start. And then if you're, you know, wanting to kind of delve into it a little bit deeper, then um, the binge eating scale questionnaire has several questions, um, and it kind of goes into more detail about, um, you know, what are some of those driving forces with, 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 um, binging? Is it driven by emotions? Is it driven by particular triggers, um, boredom? Um, it asks questions surrounding satiety and, Mm -hmm. um, regularity with their meals. Um, so it goes into a lot more detail. And I think if you're really, you know, if you've got like that positive screen off of the first one, off of the BED7, then the the BES or binge eating scale is a, is a nice follow-up questionnaire where now you can kind of better understand what are the factors at play um, and what might then be areas to target as you're looking at treatment. Okay, great. Great to know. Because sometimes, you know, we have some positive screenings because sometimes it's just the pathophysiology of obesity too. People do report eating more than an average person would in one sitting. And so sometimes patients aren't even sure if they have binge eating or not because they say, I eat large volumes of food. Um, but it might just be because their satiety mechanisms aren't kicking in, right? And telling them some patients are like, well, I just don't even know what it feels like to feel full. So yes, I eat more than other people, but that's where you need more detail. Uh, so those screening, additional screening tools, I imagine are very helpful so that we can get a better idea of, you know, is this driven by hunger or satiety, or is it more driven by emotional factors and um, and things like that? So uh, thank you for right. those resources. That's super, super helpful. 
And if a patient does have either an eating disorder or mental health disorder, you know, when we're treating their obesity, how does that affect, you think, kind of their obesity treatment? Yeah, I mean, I think it um, affects it to a, a great deal, you know, because so often um, as we're putting together that treatment plan for that patient, you know, we're focusing on the things that we may want to start taking away from their diet, for example. And, you know, we start to immediately go into kind of like restricting. Mm -hmm. And for a person that has binge eating, that will be incredibly triggering. Um, and that's not perhaps the, the first steps that you're taking with that patient. Um, you know, you might then really shift your approach and, and focus more on body image and um, building self-esteem and helping that patient to just be able to start to reconnect with their bodies. Because when people are engaging in binge eating, um, you know, it's, a, it's essentially sort of a almost a dissociative kind of experience where that person is is. Um, really feeling quite disconnected from their body. And so you, know, you really may in those early stages be helping the patient to just recognize their behavior and just kind of witnessing and observing it mm -hmm. and, um, and, and keeping track of it and, and helping to look for those patterns that are likely there before you even start to talk about changing up what they're eating. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a, it's, a different approach um, compared to maybe a patient who doesn't have binge eating. Um, and that's where see, making sure that they're seeing a therapist becomes incredibly important. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think it comes back to really what we talk about all the time, individualizing care and that you can't treat each patient with a cookie cutter approach to where you say, okay, I have a new patient. First, we're going to start with your nutrition plan. And then we're going to talk about your activity. It's Really, you need to look at the whole patient. And for some people, it may not be starting that nutrition plan on day one. It may be focusing on the, the emotional and the mental health side first, um, especially if it's more significant disease or, or, you know, fairly severe depression, you know, uh, that needs to be addressed first or, or, you know, the eating disorder before you can really start making some of those changes in nutrition or talking about some of those other behavior changes. So um, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. If a patient is depressed, you know, they're not going to be able to, you know, change what they're eating or start exercising. Um, you know, they, they probably are having a difficult time just getting out of bed and doing daily self-care really. Mm -hmm. Um, so you have to take a few steps back and, and meet the patient where they're at and focus on, you know, what's that next step that you can do to, to move forward in feeling better. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, you're just a wealth of knowledge. And I know we covered a lot of topics today. Do you have any maybe takeaway for clinicians who are treating patients with obesity and who also have coexisting mental health challenges? Any kind of key takeaway points for our listeners? Yeah. Yeah. I think just recognizing that there is that biological underpinning, which I think helps the clinician, but also helps the patient too, to recognize that, you know, a lot of this um, is not their fault. It's, it's uh, very, there's, there's, it's very complicated and it's a lot more complicated than we ever thought. And so I think it's helpful for both the healthcare providers and the patients and their families to recognize that it, that, you know, treatment of obesity is quite complex mm -hmm. and there's uh, so many factors at play and it's so important to make sure that we're addressing all of them 
Um, you know, it's, I think, especially in this day and age with the newer obesity medications, it's so easy to just write a prescription and that be the end of your obesity treatment. But I think what we're recognizing is that you cannot do that in isolation. It has to be part of a holistic approach to that patient and understanding that particular patient and knowing, you know, what are those factors that are at play that are really um, making it difficult for this patient to lose weight. And only then, once you really start to understand that patient in front of you, can you then help to get them to where they need to be? Yeah. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for those beautiful pearls and words of wisdom. And thank you for being with us on the podcast today. Of course. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. (laughs) Thank you for joining us on the Gaining Health Podcast and for your commitment to learning more about how we can care for people with obesity in a compassionate and evidence-based way. If you'd like to learn more about gaining health and how we support clinicians who want to start or optimize an obesity management program, please check us out online at gaininghealth.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to the podcast and sharing it with a friend or colleague and leave us a review. And lastly, if you'd like to support the podcast financially, even if it's just $5 a month, we would really appreciate it. And you can do so by clicking on our Patreon link in the show notes. Thank you so much. And we'll see you next time on the Gaining Health Podcast.